Spire. Welcome back to Starting Now. I'm your host, Jeff Saris. This is the show where I talk to entrepreneurs to reveal the many different approaches to entrepreneurship. Today, I'm talking to Alex Radcliffe of Board Game Co. Alex has a really interesting business. If, if you're not already familiar, board games have seen a, an immense just renaissance in the last handful of years. Very, very successful. Um, the, the community on Board Game Geek, for example, which is the main hub for board games. And just overall, the board game community is is thriving. It's it's a community of people who just just love the hobby and tend to acquire a lot of games. Well, Alex found a need. He saw the need for better trading, better uh, culling of a collection, if you will. So he started a business called Board Game Co. where he helps people make one to many, one to one, or many to many trades for their board game collection. It's a really interesting business, and I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. So without further ado, my conversation with Alex Radcliffe. Thanks for joining me on the show, Alex. And this will be a good one. I'm, I'm excited to sort of dive into what you do with your company, with Board Game Co., and what you're up to. How would you describe... Uh, what it is that you do that your business does sure so that is a long one. i'm trying to think how short i can condense that uh board game co is effectively a we're we're a reseller in you know we're, we're a seller of board games we we deal with board games both used and new but i would say our defining characteristic that makes us different than any other company is how heavily we specialize in the used market uh there's one other company i believe that does to the degree that we do which is noble night games but we have something that is a bit more unique which is more of our trading uh we, we involve in direct trading not just door credit and that's really how we started i started this in my basement as a platform to effectively trade my own games and it slowly blew out and escalated from there and so i would say we're the world's largest board game trader and one of the world's largest board game you know specializes in used games and whatnot and then past that we're a regular store we buy games we sell games and that's kind of the space we're in yeah so how long ago did you start out of your basement so i started this i got into board games in 2012 uh I started with, um, I played Catan way back, but then in 2012 was when I started to like, in the same year, I kind of hit on three different games. And when I hit that third game, so I played Stone Age, I played Catan, obviously, and then I played Stone Age and Small World within like two months of each other. And after playing Small World, I was like, wait a second, this is like a fun game. I mean, Stone Age was fun too, but I, Stone Age was just an exception. It was like, oh, hey, another cool game. Um, and then I got very heavily into board games very quickly from there. I just kind of started searching and Googling and started getting whatever. And I, in 2012 was when I got into the hobby, but then in 2012 to 2013 was when I kind of escalated and started growing my own collection. And the hobbyist side of what I did, because again, this whole business started as a hobby. It literally started as me just trading games and then trying to optimize the system from there. And that started, I would say, if I, if I recall correctly, it started like early or late 2013. Um, and it migrated, I want to say early 2013. And then it migrated into like a full-grown business with like actual employees, actual buildings, you know, actually filing taxes, doing an actual, all the actual business stuff uh, in late 2014. Mm, yeah. So 
I love the business model of the because the trading side of this is huge. Like you said, that is what really that's how I encountered you in trading my own board games with you to uh, call my collection while also sort of optimizing it to be what I want. And coming from the minimalism space, we have a documentary called Minimalism and and all sorts of things. It's interesting to me to see how the board game community really does not practice minimalism at all, which is nothing wrong with that, but it is a very um, acquisition focused uh, community and like culture in there. So I feel like you, you've created something that's very needed because it's not necessarily simple to offload games for an individual because what you're, what you're offering is really like, say I have X and I really only want a B or C while you're, your supply, the, the likelihood of you having it is is pretty high, which I think is awesome. Was that yeah. something then when you took it from a from a hobby to a business, were you noting this? Was it that your personal trades were going so well? What was sort of the inflection point for you? Sort of. So first of all, I want to touch on one point. You mentioned the minimalism. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you familiar with semi-co-op at all? Um, I've heard of it, but I'm not really familiar. It's an online comic specializing in board games, but one of my favorite comics they have is, are you familiar with Con Marie and the life-changing magic of tidying up? Mm Mm-hmm. So they have this comic uh, that's about Conria, about this whole book about practicing minimalism. And it says that it's two panels. And the first panel is like there, oh, we just read Conria and we want to like practice minimalism. We want to get into this in our board games. So we looked at all our board games and to see which ones spark joy. And the second panel is like, and they all spark joy. So we just ended up buying a bunch of expansions. Um, so it's that <laughs> aspect. It, it's it's hard. And, and, and that ties in directly to how I started this because it was actually kind of gut-wrenching. It was genuinely gut-wrenching. And, and what I mean by that is, when I started trading on a personal level, I noticed very quickly there were different kinds of people out there in the trading space. You just on board game geek, you go to trade games, you click on a few people, whatever it is, and there are people who you you know they have one or two games and you try to spark up a conversation, try to see what goes on, and hopefully work something out. But there was a very direct correlation between the number of trades a person had and how many games they actually had up in their trade lists. So someone who had like three games for trade and wanted 10 games, whatever it was, they might have like two or three trades under their belt. But then you'd find these people who had 100 trades, 200 trades under their belt, and they had these gigantic lists of games they wanted and were trading. And it's like, well, that kind of makes sense. Because a one-for-one trade is, to a degree, it helps you transition games around, but it's less efficient in terms of the sheer shipping cost involved. You're paying 15 bucks to save on a $25, $30 purchase, which is, again, better than sitting on yourself doing nothing, but especially as people who love our games and don't practice minimalism, it feels like you're getting a raw deal to get like half the value gone in shipping. Uh, but these people who had these giant trade lists up were clearly doing a lot more trades because they were doing more efficient trades. They were able to do three for three trades, four for four trades and whatnot. And so I kind of just sat there and I did something that I wonder if how many people have actually done something like this, but meaning even the people who had these lists, I don't know how much of it was their own collection versus getting rid of games they didn't care about versus doing what I did and trying to maximize the space. But what I did at the time is I had 500 games or so in my personal collection. I had only played around 100, which is probably an indication that I had a problem. Um, (laughs) And I literally sat there on BoardGameGeek and I took every single game that I had not played, every single one. If I hadn't played a game, if I hadn't said, this is a game that's staying in my collection because I love it, I marked it as for trade, which is basically taking all my babies and just saying, we're going to put up for trade. We're going to see what happens uh, with the premise that I specifically was asking for trades that favored me. I was relying on the fact that this is a, a win-win 
but I would get the better part of that win-win uh, because I was giving up games that I was o literally only trading to do it. It was a form of just maximizing the economy. Um, and, it, and it leaves a sour taste in people's mouth. It's worth noting that. When you're when you're running a business and you have expenses, it's a lot easier to understand. When you have some guy in his basement who's just trying to like eke the system, people can get frustrated, and I get that. Um, I, I really do. But I did that, and I put up all my games for trade, and it was gut-wrenching to say potentially goodbye to everything. And then I just started noticing that I was no longer reaching out to other people. I was no longer pinging someone, hey, do you have these three games for trade? Rather, they were pinging me. Hey, I just saw you put up this game. Oh, I saw this game's on your trade list. Do you see a trade here? Do you see a trade there? And I suddenly went from being the person asking to the person being asked. And then I just started escalating it from there. I'd get these games and show up in my basement. I'd put them on the shelves. I literally had to go to like BJ's to start buying, you know, shelves to start storing up my basement because over the next year and a half, I went from having 500 games to having 1,500 games in my basement. And I, I lost on shipping. Like I paid a lot of money in shipping, but I was basically getting games cheaper than it would cost me to get them elsewhere. And at a certain point, I realized this is a real business. This is a real demand for this kind of larger scale volume because I was clearly doing it without even having to try. I wasn't marketing. I wasn't paying for advertising. It was just happening. And that's when I sat there and said, listen, it's, it's got to it's gotta grow. And the next four years proceeded with me making no money and paying a lot of bills because when you <laughs> actually start paying employees and having a warehouse, it's not fun. But in 2018 was when we finally started making money again. It took a long time to actually get to a point, but it was, you know, it was, it's a fun, it's been a fun journey. It's been a lot of free games, uh, not a lot of money, <laughs> but a lot of free games. Yeah, for sure. Um, what was the biggest, well, let me actually rewind for a second. So you decided to get the warehouse, get the employees. How did you start hiring? Did you start with one? Did you start with a, a set number that you had in mind? And how did you determine that? So... The, my partner in this business is a guy named Dan Peck, and he runs a uh, he runs a warehouse in North Carolina, which is why I'm in Cleveland, and the business is in North Carolina. And his business is in the in the business of storage, basically. It's, it's all about record storage. So if you're a lawyer, a hospital, and you have all these you know I don't know papers you want to store, that's what he does. And so he utilized the aspect of having a warehouse. Uh, meaning I he, I was friends with him. He's a gamer as well. And we kind of like when I when I was ready to make it into a business, we just had a lot of conversations and we started off there. And so we were utilizing his record center and initially his staff because it effectively operates as a fulfillment center of sorts. It has the the it has the locations, it has the barcoding software, it has all the whatever, and we used his staff as well. Uh, very quickly, we realized that wasn't sustainable because his staff, the the operation they have there is uh, very in, and then everything stays there, and it's minimal turnaround. So it's he can have a ton of stuff being handled with a handful of employees. But as soon as we started doing board games out of there where everything's coming in and out quickly, uh, he realized he wasn't set up for that kind of operation. And so for the first six months, we kind of use his employees and then like after like two or three months we already started looking around uh, because we realized it wasn't sustainable and then we found someone I believe the first employee we had was we, we didn't really like we didn't really put Craigslist ads or whatnot we just tried searching around the community I believe the first employee we had was actually the son of someone who does another podcast I can't recall which one it is uh, but he has a gaming podcast and then they came in and for I would say for a few years we kind of got by and having one full-time person um, and then again in 2018, which is like I said, when we finally started being profitable, uh, we've since transitioned to having to constantly increase our staff. And now we're up to four employees at the moment. Yeah. So logistically, that is a lot to manage. I mean, with the employees, but then all of the inbound and the outbound. And yeah, you you do all the direct communication, it seems like, with the with the board game owners, the people who are looking for trades. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I'm board game geek. Yes, we have one other office person who handles most of the uh, the more of the the sales side of things. If you have a problem with uh, an order, you'll met, you'll email her. She'll handle you. She handles the main inbox in terms of email. But on Geek Mail, I still handle most of that. We finally just hired another person. So I think we're up to I guess if you count me and my partner, I think we're at eight people now. Uh, mm-hmm. We finally just hired a, another person who is still slowly starting to get involved in geek mail communication and things like that just because I'm just getting overwhelmed uh, with uh, life, thankfully. I mean, I have a, this is like a side thing. I don't know how much you know, but what goes on in my side stuff, but I have a day job. I have board game co I started doing YouTube like a year ago and I started running all that. So like I'm kind of all over the place at this point. So mm-hmm. we finally started having someone touch upon geek mails, but it's still, I would say geek mail is still 80% me. So how big of a role does the business play in your personal income? And like, are were you an entrepreneur before this? So yes and no. Um, I mean, no, no, no I would say yes, but I'd rather be no. And what I mean by that is um, I have been the kid since, since I was a kid. I've always been the lemonade stand kid. I've had lemonade stands. I'd go to hockey games and come with a, a backpack full of soda and sell them all at a profit. I've always been that kid that guy I, in camps i ran canteens and sold all the stuff i've always been this kind of personality um and then i did mtg when i was in canada for a few years i sold mtg at a had a whole online website for two years before i realized i was paying myself four dollars an hour to sort cards um, <laughs> and then i finally started the board game thing and i would say most of those experiences have helped me to some degree uh but in terms of, so I, ha- I have that entrepreneurial mindset at the same time one of my favorite quotes is a quote, I can't remember who it's from, but the quote is, an entrepreneur is someone who has, go. it goes, an entrepreneur is someone who will work 80 hours a week so that they don't have to work 40, which is such a, an, a, a mean quote, but it's true. Sometimes you're so involved in, I'm an entrepreneur, I want to build something, I want to grow this. So you overwork yourself and underpay yourself just so you're not locked into a full-time day job. Um, I get the spirit of being an entrepreneur. I love the fact that I'm growing this business. I love the fact that it's it's a part of my life, but it's certainly not going back to the first part of the question in terms of how much of a role is my personal income. It's free board games, which is nice. I don't want to undersell that. It is free board games, uh, but it's it's like it's like 1,500 bucks a month. Like I mean, it's one of those nice things. I can tell you how much it is because it's not so high that I have to worry about offending someone. Like it's not like oh yeah, I'm making 20,000 a month. No, I'm I'm making side money. That's good. Don't get me wrong. Lots of people would love to have an extra 1,500 a month, but I also work like three or four hours a day for it. So mm-hmm. it's it's definitely there. It's definitely nice. There were a period of four years where um I made nothing. Um, but and the flip side, by the way, the flip side is I do have a warehouse with like you know. 15,000 games that I own with no debt. So there, I don't want to undersell it. There's definitely been a reason why I've kept at it. At the same time, it is nowhere near as good as my day job. In terms of the monetary aspect, my day job is, is you know, much better. This is fun. This is something I've been doing for so long that it's fun. I like it. And, and I don't want to undersell either the fact that, you know, we're providing jobs and income for six other people. Uh, my partner and I get a bit of an extra paycheck on top. And, you know, that's the 1500 a month or whatnot. Um, I'm happy with the business. I'm happy with where it goes and I hope it continues to grow, but it's definitely a side hustle. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good example too, because it's not all or nothing. I think a lot of times people think, oh, I need to quit my job and build something. And I'm I'm always really hesitant for people to (laughs) quit their job without having built something because that it's, I don't know, it's glamorous to be like, oh, this is what I did. This was my um, trial by fire. But I really, I always respect people mm-hmm. who are doing it alongside their sort of main day job. Yep. What um, Does your day job relate to any of this at all? 
partially to the tiniest of degrees. Uh, my day job is uh, um, uh, what's called COO of a website that of a company that builds websites. We build e-commerce websites. So technically it relates because Board Game Code does have an e-commerce website. But mm -hmm. the actual software and implementation and what I do is totally different. So I have nothing to do with any of the coding, any of the website building. There, I'm all, all involved in the operations, you know, hiring, setting policies, uh, choosing which software is being responsible for rolling out software, things like that. I don't do any website coding. And then at the same time, the, the Board Game Co website is also built on Shopify as opposed to uh, my day job. We work in a, with a company with a software called Magento, uh, which is generally companies that are making millions and millions of dollars a year are using this framework uh, versus, you know, Shopify is more meant for a small to midsize, like up to a million a year is what it's ranged for. So there is overlap in the general e-commerce sphere, but the actual responsibilities are very different. Mm -hmm. And you're an employee of that company or yep. like it's, yeah, okay. Yep. Um, yeah, because we do actually very similar things because we do brand development. We work with WordPress. We're not doing e-commerce specifically, but my business partner and I, like, that's the main focus of what we do. So I actually didn't realize nice. that that, that was like, yeah, that, that was your main hustle. Um, so logistically, there there's so much to manage. Like, how much is coming in on a daily basis in terms of games? And then from there, what do you decide? How do you determine what goes out versus what you're going to sell? What goes out for trade versus sell? Good question. So these are all constantly developing uh, strategies. But uh, in terms of the, the sheer volume, I'd have to double check. I think we generally receive around 1,000 items a week, somewhere in that range. I'd have to check. Wow. It does vary. Um, so 1,000 games are coming in a week or so. Uh, in terms of, of selling versus trading, the way we have it set up is, is we're – we're first and foremost, our, our main competitive advantage, I guess, is trading because no one else does that. So we are always more focused on protecting that and giving as much value there compared to selling where we still want to you know, pay the bills because that's where the money comes in. But we want to focus on our competitive advantage. And so one of the things we've always made sure to do is we have as part of our algorithm effectively is items are all games are reserved for trade for a short time before they go onto website. And that is more specifically, it's, it's all tweaked to this like hotness score, which is part of what we do as well as we factor in, you know, that a copy of Caverna is far more in demand than a copy of Arkham Horror, meaning MSRP only takes you so far. There's a certain level of demand and hotness for certain games, and we take, take that into account. And so the more popular a game is, the more we hold on to it for trade first. We want to like give prime eyeballs to like, hey, we want our trade stock to always be as fully fleshed out as possible. It's never going to be as fleshed out as we want, but we want the more the better. We want our people to look at our trade inventory and be like, yeah, there's something I want, as opposed to feeling like it's you know a thrift store on the side with nothing really particular interesting. Um, and then it, 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 there's a few factors as well, which is sometimes there's, I'm trying to think how much to go into this. There are, <laughs> there are different ways to min-max a game. Some games that have a bad trade return will have a better sale return and so in theory those should go up for sale first to sustain the business uh, but in practice we still prioritize trading first even if it's not to our advantage uh, i'm not saying that won't change at some point but right now it's all trade first and at a certain point any game that hasn't traded after let's say a few weeks or whatever it is and it's variable then it goes loaded to the website it's still available makes... to trade but yeah mm -hmm. and that makes sense because you don't have to well I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'll ask the question, like if you do any marketing, I know you said at the beginning you didn't, but seemingly the trade is your marketing. 
Is that correct? To a certain extent. I don't know if the trade is the marketing. There's, I'd actually okay. have to run some numbers. I'm curious about this. Uh, now that you're saying it, I really should run some numbers and what the overlap is in our audiences, meaning someone who buys from us versus someone who trades in, what's the percentage of overlap? And I imagine they're fairly different, uh, but there probably is a degree of overlap. I know there's a degree of overlap. I just don't know how big that is. But um, in terms of marketing, actually, one of the reasons in 2018, I mentioned 2018 was the year we finally started actually being able to actually grow things and develop and starting to buy more games and put money more money into software and different side things and that's primarily because we actually started doing real marketing for a while now what i mean by that is trading has always been strong trading has always been our strong suit because we operate on board game geek so we're operating on a platform where people are already looking so they're already it's like kind of like being on ebay or amazon you don't pay marketing people are looking there um and so those always did successfully i mean like on board game geek if i'm not mistaken i think we're currently 50 percent of the games traded in the u.s go through us right now not 50 percent wow. of trades 50 percent of the games traded because our trades are larger than the average trade our trades are larger than the average person um so we're doing great there in terms of trading but in 2018 was when we started spending money on advertising on google ads facebook ads and stuff like that we started doing as an experiment and that's another gut-wrenching thing when you're barely able to pay the books i mean before 2018 like i was constantly writing checks to the company i was like we'll have to keep this thing afloat so I'll write a check and hopefully I'll pay myself back before we need another one. Um, and so in 2018, we started spending money on advertising, hoping that would help. And it did. It made a big difference. Um, it really got a lot more, the, a, lot, a lot of the word out there, got a lot of more people going to our website to buy games, where it was a place we had historically underperformed. Um, and by now we have, we have a huge rem- amount of repeat business. Uh, we're just talking so much today about this, but we have a huge amount of repeat business to the point that even though we still spend money on marketing, uh, it's not nearly as such a huge factor as it was when we first started doing it. When we first started doing it, it was it was killer. What were some of the first things that you did in terms of marketing? Um, so Google Ads was, I think, the first thing we started putting money into. We started uh, Google Ads. I think in general has a, the the highest ROAS. ROAS is, I'm sure you know this, but for people listening, <laughs> ROAS is return on ad spend. The idea that you spend is just in for every dollar you spend, you get four dollars back and that also means you have to factor that into your margins well if you're spending a dollar to get four dollars you have to be buying those games at at least 75 cents per dollar or less just to factor all these things in and those things are all they're stressful they're stressful to account for and to make sure you're doing well um, and in our case because most of our games are coming from the used game side we don't have a typical cost of goods many other companies can sit there and say well our average cost of goods is x we, we can't do that. Our games will go, through, go through such a system that most of our cost is labor and shipping, and they're distributed across gigantic trades. So the algorithms you'd have to have in place to try to establish that, and we do have algorithms. I just don't, I don't trust them because they're effectively best guesses at spreading the numbers and hoping you end up with the best place. It's, it's, it's a bit of a mess, uh, <laughs> but it makes that, that whole aspect kind of iffy. And we just keep an eye on our overall numbers in terms of the PL and the just making sure everything's balancing out in the end. On an individual basis, I'm sure we're losing here. I'm sure we're gaining there. Uh, but the way I always put it is, as long as the business is doing fine, I don't care if someone makes money on us. I don't care if someone gets a good deal. As long as we can pay our bills, pay our employees, and not go under, I'm kind of flexible on the rest. Yeah, and in terms of algorithms, I know you do, like you mentioned, you use the hotness and how much interest there is for a game. Is is the business very algorithm focused? Um, I know for some things it's hard to trust them, but um, do you tend to lean on algorithms or is there a lot of intuition that goes into it? So the intuition is primarily there was primarily there in the creation of some of these algorithms and and we have algorithms for a whole bunch of different things. Uh, so for instance, which one algorithm is I don't want to have to deal with 
actually manually listing and price checking the board game geek marketplace whenever I sell something on board game geeks marketplace. So we kind of do this price matching thing algorithmically and figure out, you know, we go through like the most recent 10 sales, figure out an ideal price. And there's a bunch of logic in there that will generate a competitive, but hopefully not too high, not too low price. Overall, overall that works great. It does not work in terms of things with a high spread. So every once in a while we'll get a question of, hey, you know, this game seems to be too high prices. Is this the Kickstarter with everything? And we're like, well, actually, no, it's the regular retail version. It just accidentally compared it to Kickstarter sales or whatnot and generated a wrong price. So we will get things like that. Um, on the website, we try to keep it more uh, fixed, but we still have exceptions. So you always have things that are either too cheap, in which case, take advantage, be my guest, or things that, well, I should say that to be clear. <laughs> when things are a little bit too cheap, uh, we usually give in. When things are drastically overpriced, are drastically underpriced, sometimes we will cancel a sale. We try to keep it incredibly rare, but it does happen. Um, in terms of things being too expensive, just let us know and we'll adjust the price. So there, there are algorithms there. I mean, they're all algorithms written by me and not some gigantic Amazon company. Again, I'm trying to run an entire business on three hours a day. Yeah. Um, and so it's they, they're flawed, but they do work decently for what we're trying to do there. Uh, the algorithm I, I would say I'm more happy with, and it is very much driven by intuition in terms of when I created it, was the algorithm for true for determining our trade scores on different items. And and the basic economy there, the basic principle that I, I always like to use, and I, I use this because I wrote a blog post back in, I don't even know, three years ago, I don't know, but I wrote a blog post about it, trying to explain the concept so that I can reference to people when I said, hey, here's why we're asking so much for that game. And the example I gave at the time was Eldritch Horror, because it had just come out, versus Arkham Horror. Both games have the same MSRP. Both games had the, the exact same MSRP. The, they're both in the same theme. One's a re-implementation of the other. But at the time, everyone and their brother wanted Eldritch Horror, and the whole entire sphere of board games was trading Arkham Horror. So MSRP and how much a game costs on Cool Stuff Inc. or on Board Game Co. for that matter will only take you so far. And we, as a company that, going back to my earlier point, as a company that has to ensure that when people come to our site, there's hot games, the last thing we want to do is trade away all our Elder Shores for copies of Arkham Horror, because then everyone sees yesterday's game, even though it's the same price as today's game, it's still yesterday's game. And so that idea, that concept of ensuring we have hot games in stock at all times is core to, to what we want to do. We want people to come. Again, I'd rather engage in a losing trade to get hot games, keep ensuring that I continuously have eyeballs and that, that are interested in what we have. And so the algorithm I put into place, and there's a whole bunch of like escalating things, but it takes into account a few things. It takes into account the number of titles we have in stock in case we're overstocked. Uh, it takes into account the actual MSRP of a game. It takes into account the average turnaround time we experience. So the more often a game sits on a shelf, it'll adjust to the algorithm. But one of the biggest factors is it takes into account the number of people uh, trading or wanting that game on BoardGameGeek, as well as the absolute value. And what I mean by that is the ratio is important and the absolute volume is important. So for example, one person who's trading a game versus 10 people who wants it is decent, but I'd rather 100 people trading it for 1,000 wanting it. Because even though both are a 10 for 1 ratio, the ten for the initial 10 for 1 leaves 9 people unsatisfied versus the 1,000 to 100 leaves 900 people unsatisfied. Meaning there's a lot more people who want this game, who are trading for it, who desire it. And so I, I put I kept on tweaking this algorithm. This was done years ago, but I kept on tweaking it until I came up with the relative values that intuitively felt right. And that algorithm drives the company. Each individual game does have the ability to be overridden, which is very relevant for things like MSRP, not MSRP, things like out of stock games or whatnot. So the the algorithm's at the core, but on an individual basis, I can say, you know what, I'm going to go into Eldritch Horror and slightly adjust the ratio a bit. 
Um, I try to avoid that because it's just a lot of manual labor I'd rather not do. But when relevant, I, I'll do that. Yeah, and all the data being in BoardGameGeek is so valuable to uh, to everyone in the community, but also to your business. Like a lot of it, a lot of the algorithms are predicated on that. If they were to change something, do you foresee like a way to adjust that? No, no is okay. a short answer. Um, basically, <laughs> it depends what you define by changing. But like, just to give one example, and this this stuff is the stuff of nightmares. Uh, this is one. This is these are the times when I wish I was getting paid more because the amount of work I'm putting into the amount of free games plus you know side cash is is nice. It's okay. It's not breaking the bank, but I'm okay with it. But then sometimes things happen, and those things vary. Um, and I'll give some examples in a second. But one relevant example is. About two years ago, maybe maybe less than that, it might have been a little less than two years ago, but somewhere in the range of two years ago, maybe 18 months or whatnot, uh, someone did a brute force attack on BoardGameGeek in terms of the way, I don't think it's a brute force, they did something with the API where they were basically trying to break the API. And the end consequence of that is BoardGameGeek stopped letting you use the API for any collection that was more than 10,000 games. They just had this thing where if you try doing an API pull, and an API, for those who don't know, I can have to remember who I'm talking to, um, <laughs> an API is, an, uh, I think it stands for Automated Program Interface. Does that sound right? Something like that. But it's yeah, basically this idea, right. idea that you have programs talking to each other. And so in this case, you have BoardGameGeek's database, which has these endpoints that you can talk to and it will give you the information you want. And so the APIs in question are the idea that I would constantly reference my own collection on BoardGameGeek to adjust it, to add games. Like I mentioned, a thousand we receive a thousand games a week. We're not manually going into BoardGameGeek and marking all those games for trade. We yeah. have that built into our system that they get scanned, they get moved to our system, and then our system talks to BoardGameGeek and like marks them for trade and puts any notes in. This game has a torn edge. This game's new and shrink. It puts all this stuff in there automatically. I'm not tweaking. And by the way, there was a time when I was marking every single one of those manually. But at 1,000 <laughs> games a week, I can't do it. When we had 100 yeah. a week, I could do it. Um, and so BoardGameGeek shut off that API for anything above 10,000. You'd make an API call, and it would just say, nope, we're not doing that to you. And we had more than 10,000 games. And I and the, the biggest problem is you couldn't even get the information in any way. It was like I kind of literally had a dead account. And so what I did at the time is when I first started on Boarding Geek, my account was Alex SR, which is Alexander Sender Radcliffe. And I that was my personal account. And for a long time, I had debated like at what point do I want to move to a official board game co-account, but like all the information, all the feedback, everything else was on the other account. And this was the trigger because our data was straight up locked out. We couldn't, unless we were willing to do it manually, we couldn't get the, the tons and tons of information from BoardGameGeek. And so we started a new account, and I also had to pivot and adjust the way our things were handled because since we could no longer have more than 10,000, suddenly instead, what I started doing is instead of having, like say, Elder Chora being an example, it used to be I'd have 12 different copies of Elder Chora, all with the unique notes. Now I have one copy of Elder Chora, and each one is bulleted out within that copy of choose this option. And like longtime traders who probably have no idea why we ever made that change, if they ever listen to this, will now know why, which is we literally had to try to figure out a way to ensure that we don't have more than 10,000 titles or we would just have a problem. And even right now, by the way, we're currently at 9,546, which Ooh. involves these it's, – it's a, it's a game. We're, we're, we, there are ways to adjust or right now. And part of the problem with that is – BoardGameGeek considers any item an item, whether you have it for trade or whether you want it for trade or any of those things. So what I keep undoing, which is really annoying, is and this is all this is all me just trying to play within someone else's 
playground effectively. But uh, what I keep on doing is whenever that number gets too high, which it is, I should probably do something about it right now, is I slightly adjust the parameters of what we want in trade on BoardGameGeek. So I'll sit there and say, you know what? Previously, we were willing to take anything, not anything. We have this algorithm place as to how we want something as well. But previously, that had a minimum threshold of at least 30 people need to want that title for us to want it. And I've been slowly tweaking that number upwards to cut out the amount of games we have on BoardGameGeek because we can't have more than 10,000 games on BoardGameGeek or we won't be able to access anything. And so I keep tweaking that out. Now, we do have a separate app. So if you go to the actual app, there you'll get our full want list. But on Board Game Geek, you might have these like small inconsistencies because which are trying to play in someone else's playground. And that goes back to like the question of like, well, what happens if something changes? We don't know. Uh, board Game Geek could wake up one day and say, you know what? Uh, we're kind of not interested in this board game co guy trading on our website anymore, and we're just going to shut off his access. And I mean, frankly, the problem is the problem there is we have enough tools set up that we could probably make things work. Um, I hope they don't because I'm. The downside of not having a ton of money coming in from BoardGameCo is you put up enough of a roadblock and I'll just say, you know what, it's been a fun run and it's time to move on. Um, I think the fact that we have 50% of the domestic games in the USK-based trades coming through us means that we'll have enough upset people, I hope. But it's it's a battle that I'm willing to I'm, I'm willing to play the game. I'm willing to jump around and dance and whatnot. But ultimately, if they make it too hard, it's, it's their call. They can shut us down at any point and I don't know if I care enough to to try to make that work. I mean, I care. I don't know if I'm getting compensated enough to, to try to like literally just jump to whatever. So, and, and if it's down the road, that might change by the way, because down the road, like we do have plans to build out our own app and to not be as reliant on them. Uh, but those things all take money and we need, we need more money. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're fine. Like we have, we have a, we have a little bit of a fun setup to start to building out the app. We just haven't gotten around to it. Uh, we actually had plans to do it in 2020. And then as you know, 2020 happened. Um, <laughs> and so, we just we focused primarily on literally surviving in terms of just being able to get through COVID and actually not have to worry about, you know, are we going to sell games? What's going to happen? Which leads to another one of those, you know, fun moments where I'm wondering when it's all worth it, which is doing COVID. We basically lost all our employees. We literally had a 100% overturn doing COVID. And wow. it's not fun trying to run a business in Cleveland to a, you know, North Carolina and training new people in when you don't have anyone who can train them in. No one's there who's been doing it before. Like we had a hundred percent overturn and it was, it was an absolute mess. It's stressful watching orders pile up and we have no one to pack them. It's, 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 it's fun times. We got through it. We get through it all. I mean, we keep making it through, but lots of fun times. Yeah. And with that turnover, was that people leaving like just for their own safety to not be in a physical location? So it was a combination of both. Uh, we cut down to literally one person because we, in order to comply with North Carolina laws uh, doing, doing the shutdown, so we were only allowed to have one person at the warehouse. They, they basically said you have to shut everything down because you can't have multiple people. So we're like, okay, great. Well, if we have one person, then they can't do anything. There's no COVID to catch. Um, and so we cut down to one person, and then doing that time frame, uh, he ended up quitting during that time frame. And that's uh, partially he's a good guy, but partially, I mean, at the end of the day, it's – it, it was always a harder place to be in, and especially once unemployment rules changed effectively, that people were basically able to make almost as much money by just not working as they are by working. Um, he ended up walking out the door, and we ended up reaching out to old employees, and it was a stressful three weeks, but we managed to get some people in. Then we eventually managed to hire people, and we, we survived on some college kids for a bit. Uh, we, 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 we did what we could to make things work, but there was definitely a period of time where 
A, we weren't shipping boxes for like three weeks. And then even when we started shipping boxes, we got a bunch of complaints because people were packing boxes who had no experience packing boxes. And that is that it's not fun. It's not fun for the customers. It's not fun for me. Um, it's just not fun for anyone involved. And we fortunately made our way past that. But it was definitely not a fun few months. Yeah. And that's that resilience, though. I mean, you have to push push through it, figure out what, what it takes to survive and continue to thrive. Yeah. So I like to sort of close all the conversations asking, what would you do if you were to start all over today? So you're still, you're still building, you're still growing. Um, but I, I kind of like to frame it if, if this was all a dream, but everything was accurate. Everything you've learned, all your experiences still completely apply, but you were starting from the ground floor to restart the business. I think the answer would most likely be I would have changed our website and started marketing you know in 2014 as opposed to 2018 and uh, remember that is in addition to the the marketing we started doing in 2018 one of the things we did first one of the reasons we had held off on marketing for so long wasn't because we didn't know about the concept we knew what marketing was but our old website was not good it was very slow it was very hard to work with and it was not a pleasant experience for anyone i'm kind of shocked we got any orders and so we were never willing to spend money on marketing until we had that improved website um, and so we pushed it off for years. We eventually did manage to get the new website at the door. We built it on Shopify. I did everything myself. Um, I have enough tech background to do that. And then we, once we had that website that was actually functional, actually a pleasant experience, that's when we started spending money marketing. And the two combined really drove the business in 2018. Um, in 2018, in the beginning of 2018, we, my partner and I literally said we're going to close up shop if this, is, if this year doesn't actually finally make money. It's, there's only, we weren't losing money, thankfully, but there's only so much you can actually put sweat into something before you sit there and say that's be a return and the reason i say that 20 that that aside from the obvious fact it would have been better for the first four years is the problem is that put me four years of mental exhaustion and energy into this business in the hole with no real return and so every time i hit a speed bump every time i hit a hurdle every time something happens with employees with uh software with technology all those things are mental things that make me say well, you know, I like I like this this enterprise. It's it fills a unique space. It's not it's genuinely not purely about money of any way. I mean, money's a factor, but I genuinely feel we are providing a a service that no one else is, and I feel bad for the space if we ever choose to vacate it. Um, but I I don't like the fact that I've gone through all these roadblocks and speed bumps and issues that make it so that like I say, like I have that exhaustion aspect of if Board Game Geek does something that turns it off. I've, I've done a lot of the fighting. I've done a lot of the persevering and whatnot. And eventually, hopefully, there's enough of a payday one day that I'll keep fighting. But right now, I'm in a place where it's like, I'll, I'll keep at it, but just don't throw too many things my way. Um, and I think those four years would have been nice to be actually making money instead of working with no return for four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So thank you much, so much for doing this. Um, where should we send people to check out everything you're up to? Excellent question. Um, BoardGameCo.com is where we sell our games. Uh, on BoardGameCo, the profile on BoardGameGeek is where you'll find most of the trades. Um, and if you want to, you know, just watch me uh, cover board games or whatnot, or occasionally sing. Don't don't ask. Don't ask. Uh, <laughs> then you can search BoardGameCo on YouTube, where I do a lot of stuff there as well. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thank you again, and hope you enjoy the rest of your day. A big thanks goes out to Alex for joining on, joining me on this episode. Be sure to check out BoardGameCo.com to see his business in action. As always, this episode of Starting Now is brought to you by Built. At Built, we help you get online. Whether you're starting a blog or a business, head on over to Built.co. That's B-Y-L-T dot C-O to get started. Built. Your website. Built for you. Simply. 
And finally, if you're enjoying starting now, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or watch the video version on YouTube. And if you have a minute to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that would mean the world to me because every every listen, every view, every review just helps this podcast grow. And that'll do it for this week. Again, this is starting now. I'm Jeff Saris, and I'll see you next time.